Let's open up our Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. As we continue our verse-by-verse understanding of this blessed epistle that was written to this early community of believers that was converted out of uh, Old Covenant Judaism to the truth of the Gospel of Christ. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 6, and Lord willing, we're going to treat verses 2 through 6 in our message today. Hebrews chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. The Bible declares, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, or it could be translated, this one, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by someone or some man, but he that buildeth all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, the last time we were in chapter 3 of Hebrews, we dealt only with verse number 1. And we noticed that verse number 1, it was a door, as if it were, opening up to a new section of this epistle to the Hebrews. The reason the writer was writing this epistle, and he begins this new section, was to help fortify the faith of these early Jewish Christians for whatever reason we're being tempted to go back to Old Covenant Judaism. We're not given the exact details of why they were considering or tempting this, but they were. And so he's writing this and he's beginning a new section here to try to convince them to do so would be disastrous. Now when we were in verse 1, you might recall that I said that we need to enter in this new section of Hebrews chapter 3 to chapter 5 by understanding that he begins to frame as if it were a sermon under the headings of two arguments. The first one we're going to get into today in chapter 3 is an argument or a comparison with Jesus and Moses. That's very apparent. And that goes on all the way to chapter 5. And then the second part of his argument in this sermon to try to convince them, don't go back, begins in chapter 6 all the way to chapter 12 where he begins to compare Jesus to the high priestly ministry of Aaron. So he's really comparing Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, the work of Jesus, to and in contrast to these old covenant office bearers, Jesus or Moses as a teacher, Aaron as a high priest. And he's saying, don't return back to the old covenant. Don't return back to the things that could not give what it promised. Now, you remember uh, the last message we introduced that phrase, Old Covenant. We began to use that type of language. 
And I gave it to in your sermon notes, and I think it's helpful for us just to recap. What am I meaning by Old Covenant? Moses being a teacher in the Old Covenant era. Aaron being a high priest in the Old Covenant era. Well, you see in your notes, what we mean by the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is a system of interconnected covenantal arrangements that God utilized for the purpose of pointing His people toward the promised Messiah that was revealed in Genesis 3.15 and also pointing them to a new and a better covenant arrangement that will be established by the promised Messiah with the sacrifice of His own life. And that promise of this establishment of a new and a better arrangement that these Jewish Christians had experienced, that the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to stay with and stick with and don't go back to the old. That new covenant arrangement comes most clearly through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, but it comes through in Isaiah in multiple places as well. Now these two arguments, the one where he's going to use to compare Jesus to Moses and the one comparing Jesus to Aaron, combined together were intended by this pastor, this preacher who's writing this letter, to remind these early Christians that central to the gospel message of Jesus Christ was that the Son, who was God's promised Messiah, had indeed taken upon Him the nature of Abraham. That's what he said in chapter 2. It was central to the gospel of Jesus Christ that they professed, that they believed in chapter 3, verse 1, that they believed that the Messiah did take upon Him the nature of of a man in order to give his life in chapter 2 for the ransom of the people's sins once and for all and do away with the old covenant sacrificial system. This was central to the gospel. This belief that the eternal son left all the glories to come in the flesh and to pay this ransom to fulfill all the covenant promises that God made to the ancient Jews. And therefore, the seriousness of how they were thinking, or the seriousness of them even considering to return to the Old Covenant, was in all reality an outright rejection of the Gospel itself. Think for a moment, it would be a rejection of Jesus' claims of being the sent Messiah. He said in His earthly ministry, I am the way, I am the truth, no man cometh in the Father but by Me. It would have been a rejection of His claims. It would have been a rejection of God's witness of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was baptized baptized by John the Baptist and even upon the Mount of Transfiguration, God said of His own eternal Son from heaven with a voice, don't understand all the details of the voice, could have been an audible one, could have been an internal one, but He did make known to the crowd and those witnesses that this is my beloved Son. Heed what He says. Listen to His law. It would be a rejection of that. And lastly, for one, to go back to the old covenant way of life would be a mark, it would be a stamp upon them that they truly had never received the heavenly calling that they professed in verse 1 of the gospel. It would be a mark that no, you had not received the heavenly calling. You are not partakers of this heavenly gift that God gives to His true people if you go back to the old covenant covenant way of worship and belief. 
And so today, the inspired writer begins the first of these two arguments to try to help them, to try to warn them, to do all he can as a minister. Don't go back. He begins the first of these two arguments by bringing into our focus this key Old Covenant, Old Testament figure named Moses. Now Moses, we must understand, was very instrumental in the overall religious life and also the overall self-identification of the Jewish people. And also these first century Jews who would have been reading this sermon that was sent to them. And it would have been bewildering to them for any preacher to begin to dialogue with them or to warn them about what they're attempting to do to go back to the old covenant, to begin to talk to them about the covenants of God, begin to talk to them about the Messiah of God, and this whole scheme by which they can have eternal life through the Messiah. It would have been bewildering them to even entertain such a religious discussion without this key central figure, Moses, being brought into the conversation. As one theologian rightly observes about how much Moses was venerated and important in their religious life, their self-identification, he says, quote, it's truly difficult for us who weren't in this immediate context, to exaggerate the importance of Moses in Judaism, and along with that, the veneration which he was highly regarded. And, and, and a lot of times we, I think that's true, we, we become a little bit disconnected with that. We just, you know, through Moses came the law, but through Jesus Christ, you know, that New Testament uh, scripture, uh, we have grace and peace, you know. And, and, and we, kind, we kind of, in the church, at times, mistakenly, begin to kind of pit Moses against Jesus. Like, against Moses against, you know, the new covenant and what we have. Like, Moses is the bad guy, right? That represents the law. And, and No, 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 no. That's not the case at all. We're going to see that today. That's, not, that's a wrong way to think of Moses. All right? And in the first century Jewish context, oh, he was highly venerated. In fact, have you ever heard uh, politicians being interviewed in a debate or whatever, and one of the questions is always asked, hey, who would you say was your favorite person in history? And, you know, you get these interesting answers, and it sheds light on kind of what influences their thinking, you know? If you would have asked any Jewish boy or girl, mom or dad, in the first century, who is your favorite person in history? The majority of them would have said Moses. That's how profound Moses was in the influence of their self-identification and their religion. And this is why, beginning today, we're going to see this preacher begin to use Moses and bring him out in his sermon compared to Jesus to help them to see that while Moses, yes, was indeed faithful, and while, yes, Moses was also sent by God, Jesus is more glorious than him, and he is The title of our sermon today, The Apostle, the Teacher of Our Profession. And so I propose that we look today at our text under two headings, just two. The first one is going to be recognizing that there are identified in the text two faithful apostles. There's not just one, there's two faithful apostles. But our second heading is going to see that only one is glorious. Only one is worthy of more glory. And that, of course, is Jesus. So let us, as you see in your summer notes, begin now to consider these two faithful apostles. In verse 1, when we treated that the last time we were together, 
We saw that the object of our consideration that we were supposed to think upon to help us be anchored to the truth and not deviate and go away was Christ Jesus. And it was interesting that in verse 1, as you see in your Bibles, that Christ Jesus, who we were to consider, who we were to meditate upon, who if you remember the word, what it carried with it, the idea of having your fixed mind upon it, he is identified as an apostle and as a high priest. And so under this heading, I want us to focus our attention upon Jesus as an apostle, especially in relationship to Moses also as an apostle. But before we go any further, let's first become settled in our mind. What do we mean by this term, apostle? Because just admit, as I've been using that word, perhaps you've already thought of some names like Peter, James, Paul, right? You're thinking apostles. And while these men were indeed godly men, and they were certainly apostles, those directly sent by Christ, directly taught by Christ. The word itself being used here today to identify Jesus Christ as an apostle, as you see in your notes in the Greek, it simply means one that is sent as a delegate, one sent as a messenger, one sent forth with orders or a task to accomplish, one that's been sent with authority on a mission. Such a person, such an apostle, was authorized to speak in the name of the person who had dispatched them. And with this definition in front of us, just simply what an apostle means, it's fitting here in our text that Jesus, in light of chapter 2, according to the eternal plan of God, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, it's fitting that Jesus is identified as an apostle, isn't it? We saw in Ephesians 2.18, this was a divine scheme of God to redeem his church. And Jesus voluntarily was sent forth from the Father. And so with this understanding of the apostle, of course, Jesus is an apostle of the Father, sent for the purpose appointed unto him. But what about Moses? How does Moses fit into this scheme in comparison of an apostle? Well, let's consider that for a moment as you see in your notes. Moses as an apostle comes through the scriptures very clearly. Now, when we speak of the apostle in the general sense of the term, simply one who's been sent forth with a mission, someone who's been sent forth with a task to accomplish, the scriptures speak much of Moses in this light. Uh, It's very appropriate to call Moses or to consider him as one sent forth as an apostle. I've given you several examples in your sermon notes. The first one comes from Exodus 3.10. 13 through 14. And as we're doing this, we're going to begin to see why Moses was so venerated amongst the Jewish people, why he was such a key figure and worthy to be brought into the understanding, the comparison of the Lord Jesus Christ to help them see how Christ is all the more to be venerated. Exodus 3.10 and verses 13 and 14. Here you perhaps are familiar with the context. This is where God's calling Moses um, he, he's left Egypt, his comfortable surroundings. And uh, he's, you know, uh, herding sheep and he started a family. But God now has a calling on his life. He has a task, he has a mission for him to do. He needs Moses to be sent on a mission to accomplish. Come now, therefore, God said to Moses, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. Jumping down to verse 13 in your notes. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. 
And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, This is what you're going to say. It's echoing what we read this morning in Isaiah 51. I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And so in this general sense, we see very clearly Moses, yes, he was an apostle. He was one of God's ministers of truth to accomplish redemptive purposes. It comes through again in Exodus 7, 16, when Moses, still unsure of himself, I appreciate this aspect of Moses. He's been given this serious task and he's kind of doubting himself. He's questioning himself. He understands in humility his own limits. And here he's asking God, well, what am I going to say to Pharaoh when I'm standing before him? God says to him, Thou shalt say unto him, referring to Pharaoh, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear Pharaoh. So it's very easy to see that Moses was an apostle. He was one that was called by God to go and do a very hard task. And the verse that we have today in front of us in verse 2 and verse 3 demonstrates not only was he distinctly selected by God and sent by God, but Moses was also faithful to that task. Moses was faithful to the mission that God gave him. This comes through for us in our second consideration under this heading that Moses, the text says today, was a faithful apostle. Moses was a faithful servant. Moses, therefore, we see, being an apostle of God, is identified as being found, the text says, faithful in all his house. Now, it's very important here that we correctly understand whose house is being described here in verse 2. Because I admit, I don't know how many times I've read this text over, glossed over it, and never really saw all that I, that, that I seen it come to the surface when I studied this out. And it's absolutely wonderful. And it's very important that we understand whose house is being described here in verse, 30, verse number 2. Because, beloved, it's not Moses' household. Moses, the text is not teaching that Moses was found faithful in his house as Brother Grizz, to his credit, not putting him on the spot, not trying to uh, you know, embarrass you here. But he was faithful to his household, his wife today, when they pulled up in the church, you know, having snow a little bit after on the, in, the, in the breezeway, in the walkway. He pulled up and he was faithful. He was trustworthy. He got out and he let his wife out on you know, a safer part of the ground. He made sure she got to the church. Okay. So he was faithful. Grizz was faithful in that instance to his household. That's not what the text is saying here. It's not saying that Moses, he was sent by God and he was faithful to his household. He taught his children well. He disciplined them well. He loved his wife as himself, except that's not what's being said. But how do I know that? How can you be sure of that? Well, we know this by recognizing that the inspired writer here is actually quoting verbatim from the book, as you see in your notes, from the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 7. Where God says of Moses himself, regarding God's household, he says, my servant Moses, he goes on to say, is faithful in all my house. 
Now this is a significant reference, beloved, to Moses' faithfulness as it's recorded in Numbers 12, verses 1 through 15, where in the context of that chapter, Miriam and Aaron are beginning to try to position themselves as being somehow equal and peers with Moses. And God has to point out to them and He has to correct them and tell them, no, 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 no. You are in no way a peer of Moses. You are in no way in the same league as who I have sent my prophet Moses. Moses shared, as recorded in Numbers 12, a unique privilege with God and he was sent by God to reprove not only Aaron and Miriam as a messenger from God, but all the household of God. And God says of Moses, who enjoyed this unique privilege, this very sober responsibility, he is faithful in all of my house. And so when we come to our text today, the text reads, Jesus, who was faithful in verse 2, to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Regarding this uniqueness which Moses held in the household of God, in verse 8 of Numbers 12, the depth of the intimacy that Moses shared with God is expressed in how God says he's going to communicate with Moses. There, some of you may recall, he said that he would communicate with Moses as with him who speaks mouth to mouth. That's how special the relationship was between God and his servant, his apostle Moses. And how faithful Moses was to the calling that he was given to rebuke the nation when they were wrong, stand alone by himself when all of them wanted to worship idols. Moses, beloved, was a godly man. Moses ought to be one of the most venerated godly men of all of church history. Moses was found by God to be faithful in all of his house. Blessed be God that He gave His people Moses. A man who would have a backbone. A man who God was so uh, 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 intimate with in their relationship with one another, as God described as speaking mouth to mouth, that Moses would not think for a second of disobeying God. And in his flesh he did, yes. But in the context here, to develop the veneration of Moses, notice how that's not being spoken of. Because it doesn't serve the purpose of what the writer is wanting them to see. Moses was a faithful apostle of God. Now the word faithful, I've already alluded to it in the Hebrew and the book of Numbers, as well as it's being used here. In the Greek, it carries with it the same idea. Faithful in both the Greek and the Hebrew just means trustworthy. Someone, and the lexicon tells us, is trustworthy unto the end, the very end. And Moses, beloved, was trustworthy as a steward of the Lord's message. And it was Moses' commitment as fueled by the grace of God in his life to his commission tasked of why he was so venerated in the succeeding generations. They could look back and they would hear stories of the faithfulness of Moses 
And that's why he was held in such high regard. That's why so many of them would have picked him as their favorite hero of history. Moses was the one who wouldn't give up. Moses was the one who stood fast. Moses is the one who pointed us in the right direction. Moses in the one was the one while not being a perfect apostle, he was a faithful apostle. Of course, Moses many times regretted and lamented in his own life the mistakes he made. Oh, but beloved, what was one distinct mark of Moses? As being sent by God, knowing he was sent by God, receiving a commission by God. He got up, he shook the dust off of himself, he shrugged off his own failures, and he moved forward as a faithful apostle. What an example. What an example. And this veneration of this godly, faithful man from the old covenant era is exactly why he was held with such high regard in their eyes. And this preacher, of course, naturally is going to take one of the most eminent men in the minds of these first century, first century Jews and now place them in the center of this conversation. Do you remember this man? Well, let me now tell you about one who's even greater than him. This brings us to consider him being compared to Jesus. Just as Jesus was spoken of in chapter 2, verse 10, you recall, as the captain of our salvation, sparking in their memories recollections of Joshua, their old covenant faithful captain and leader into the land of Canaan. No doubt here the mention of Moses is being used by the writer to communicate how that Jesus, in a similar way, but he's going to demonstrate here in a moment, in an all far superior and greater way, is also someone who's here to be faithful in all things pertaining to God. Moses, as I said before, yes, was faithful. Moses was, as we've demonstrated, as God acknowledged himself in the book of Numbers and elsewhere, Moses was, yes, trustworthy, but this apostle, this apostle of our profession, is counted worthy of more glory than even Moses. We need to be clear about something here. I believe it's important to say before we move on. The writer in no way is suggesting any kind of disrespect or um, you know, degradation to Moses' memory, Moses' ministry. That's not what's being done here. We have to be careful when we start having these comparisons between Moses and Jesus that we just go on a Moses bashing campaign. Because that's not the writer's intent here whatsoever, any more than it was the writer's intention when he was comparing the eternal son to angels and the ancient prophets. He wasn't degrading any of those people as well, the angels in their role and the prophets sent by God in their role. I say this because there is no mention in our text, as I mentioned earlier, of Moses' sins. We notice that. He's not on a campaign here to taint uh, by, by exalting Christ, by exalting our apostle of, the, of our profession of faith, he's not in any way trying to stain the reputation or the memory of Moses. He's simply wanting to point out a fact and help us to understand why this man was so venerated and so good. Jesus is worthy of more glory and he's going to show us why he's worthy of more glory. He's going to show us to them, these first century Jews who needed to be reminded since they were tempted to go back to old covenant Judaism, he's going to remind them why Jesus is on 
an altogether different plane than Moses. It's not as though he's bringing Moses up to the conversation and say, okay, he was a really great godly man, not perfect, but yes, faithful. And here, by the way, is another in our generation godly man who's just a little bit more faithful, just a little bit more uh, obedient to God's commandments. And so that's why he's worthy of more glory. You know, he's about to unpack in a moment just how Jesus was an altogether different plane. But it is worth mentioning, you probably perhaps have been in um, context where you've heard this text preached and there just seems to be like Moses pitted in this light to where also, you know, as where we almost don't want to have nothing good to think about Moses. And that's definitely not the case being done here by this inspired writer and how he's using Moses. Okay, so let's consider Jesus then as our apostle. Now, to do this, I want us to consider the significance of what verse 2 says about Jesus being faithful in His appointment with connection to His human nature. Jesus, as an apostle sent by God, the text said is faithful, but let's consider the faithfulness of Jesus sent by God as an apostle with the mission, with the task, in connection with His human nature. Because His divine nature... His divine will as being one of the members of the Godhead could be nothing but faithful to the eternal scheme of God. Amen? There's not ever any kind of contradicting wills within the Godhead. The eternal Son described in chapter 1 is of course God of God, light of light, and the mind of the eternal God who expresses His will for all of creation is in complete harmony. Ah! But we just learned in chapter 2 that this eternal son took upon himself also the nature of Abraham. He was incarnated, took upon himself the nature of a man, which comes with, with that a reasonable soul, a real soul, and human flesh. In other words, he had a man's will. Jesus as a man also possessed a man's will. This comes through wonderfully in the Athanasian's Creed. I've given it to you in your text. Follow along as I read it. Referring to Christ, the Orthodox Christian Church has forever professed Christ is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. That's all chapter 1 of Hebrews. And He is human from the essence of His mother, Born in time. That's all, well, the latter half of chapter number 2 of Hebrews. Born in time, completely God and completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regarding His divinity, less than the Father regarding His humanity. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one, He is one, however, not by His divinity being turned into the flesh, but by God's taking humanity to Himself. That's Christian orthodoxy. Anywhere, any society, I don't care if they have a golden cross on the church. I don't care if they call themselves Christians. If they deny these tenets of who and the nature of Jesus is, beloved, they're not Christian. They're something else. But for our purposes today, Jesus in His human nature possessed a human will. The Bible records 
How that Jesus' will was voluntarily and perfectly submitted to the Father's purpose for His life as an apostle, as one sent on a mission. We spent a good amount of time discussing in chapter 2 how this appointment of Jesus originated in eternity past within the Godhead regarding the salvation of the church. You guys remember that. We introduced some theological language at that time with terms such as covenant of redemption, covenant of grace. That's that's that eternal plan being done where the Father, what, is going to send now the eternal Son in time, space, and history, and He's going to take upon Himself that human flesh. And all of these phrases, all this language, covenant of grace, this eternal appointment. Beloved, you see now, all these things just help us to accurately conceptualize biblical truths. Verse number 2 says that Jesus was fa- is an apostle and He was faithful to Him that appointed Him. We've already covered the eternal aspects of the appointment. And now we see that His human will devoted itself, brothers and sisters, perfectly, righteously to the will of the Father who sent Him. Moses can never claim that. No, we know Moses struck the rock in anger, didn't he? Moses did things at times in the flesh. His will as a man wasn't perfectly yielded to the will of the Father as Christ was. This is why I wanted to bring in the aspect of Jesus' human nature, which is really articulated in the latter half of chapter number 2 and then mentioned right here at the beginning of chapter 3. He was an apostle and he was faithful. Of course, he was faithful as a man completely. And this is why he could take our place upon the cross. It exalts, you see, the righteousness of Christ. It exalts our unrighteousness because our wills are never perfectly submitted to the Father. How often do we come in our prayer clause and say, Oh God, I confess I have not loved you with all uh, my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind. Why? Because your will is not perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. Ah, but there was one. There was one man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who brought himself in complete Submission to the law of God because he loved the law of God. He loved the mission that he was on and he did it perfectly. Doesn't that just bloom? Verse number two, he was faithful. He was found faithful to him who appointed him. I think one of the most remarkable demonstrations of Jesus' faithfulness to the appointment of God is recorded as you see in your notes. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, here we see one of the most intimate expressions of our Lord's humanity being submitted to the will of His heavenly Father who sent Him. His manly will, no matter what the cost, is going to do what the Father demands for the redemption of your soul. For the redemption of your soul, He said, "Father." If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not my will, but thine be done. It's Jesus' human obedience. It's Jesus' perfect submission of His will to the purposes and the appointment of the Father is exactly why, unlike Moses, unlike Moses, 
This venerable, godly man of the Old Covenant that these Jews loved and revered were always taught, preached the truth, etc., etc. It's why you're like Moses, our Apostle, the Lord Jesus, could, as chapter 2, verse 17 says, make reconciliations for the sins of the people and thereby qualify Him as the only sinless, perfect mediator between us and God. Now with these concepts of the eternal Son through His incarnation, limiting Himself in a human nature and submitting that human will, that human nature to the purposes of Him who sent Him from eternity past, being found perfectly faithful even unto death, and thereby fully accomplishing the task that was assigned to Him, we can fully appreciate why in verse 3 the writer says, this apostle is counted more worthy of glory than Moses, can't we? Out of the two apostles in our text today, only one is counted worthy of more glory. Amen? Only one. Let us explore though why I'm still connecting and wanting to bring before your minds these ideas of Jesus' incarnation in the temporal sense and His eternal existence as God in an eternal sense to the forefront of the assertion in verse 4 of it making Him more worthy of glory. So because He's God, becomes man, and as a man submits perfectly His will to the Father, even unto death, He can't even be compared to Moses, really. I'm going to, the, the preacher's doing, use Moses, but now you see, really, there's no comparison. I'm trying to use the comparison to help you see the point here, but, but there's really no comparison. Look what, he, look what he does now moving forward to demonstrate the assertion of why he deserves so much glory. We've already seen hints of it already, but it comes out even more here in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 on the surface tells us why. Why is He worthy of more glorious? Of more glory? Because Jesus as God as apostle is worthy of this glory because verse 3 says, He who hath built the house has more honor than the house. Well, what does this text mean by house? What does it mean by this language, the house? The answer to this question is important. And I know we're a little, getting a little long here, but, but stick with me because the answer to this question is important and it carries with it theological significance of all this talk of house, Moses' house. I've already told you that it was talking about the household of God. It wasn't. It's not talking about Moses' household. But why is he still using all of this language about building a house? And this is therefore why Jesus is worthy of more glory. As you see in your notes, I've given you the Greek word for house that it's used right here. And it's clear that the use of this word by this inspired writer elsewhere in his letter is in complete harmony with the meaning of how the Apostle Paul describes the elect of God as the household of faith in Galatians 6.10. Now notice the examples I'll give you of how this writer right here is using the word house, this concept of a house, the household of God, so forth and so on. Let's, let's just flesh that out. He is meaning the church. 
He does it in Hebrews 8.8 and verse 10. You have it in your notes. Uh, Finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. And he's quoting Jeremiah 31. Why will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah? He goes to verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart. I'm sorry, into their mind. And I will write them in their heart. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. He goes on later in this epistle to chapter 10 verses 21 and 22. And he uses the same Greek word that's in complete harmony with the concept that this is those who belong to God and have His law written upon their hearts that we talked about this morning in the book of Matthew. Chapter 10, he says later on in this epistle, you see it in your notes. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now consider for a moment, beloved, how that elsewhere, 1 Timothy 3.15, I've given you in your notes, this Greek word and this concept of the house of God and the church of God to come together. 1 Timothy 3.15 If I tarry long, the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, that thou mayest know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Why am I harping on this? Why am I hovering on this? Because it's very clear here in our text today, elsewhere throughout the epistle to the Hebrews, elsewhere in the New Testament, to be included in this house of God that we see Moses was a servant of, God is the builder of. To be included in this house, in this church of the living God, can only be accomplished through Christ. Therefore, consider this theological implication. The text states, Moses, who lived in the Old Covenant era, was a faithful servant in the house, in the household of God, the church of God, the elect of God, the faithful, those who have the law written upon their hearts, not just outward professors. This is what the word house means. This is what household of God means. Moses who lived in the old covenant era, he was a member of that house. And the builder of that house we see in our text today in verses 3 and 4 is who? It's Christ. It's Christ. And in verse 6, we who live in the new covenant era time after the cross were described as being in the household of Christ, aren't we? In verse number 6, let's look at your Bibles. Thus, the theological implication is this. We cannot conclude that there are two separate households of God. A household which Moses belonged to and a household consisting of all of those who trust and belong to Jesus. There is one household of God in verses 2-6. through And Christ, He's the builder of the house, brothers and sisters. And Moses was one of His servants who was pointing to Him in the era, in the economy, and in the covenantal arrangements within He existed. The old covenant never could provide what only Christ could give. And thus Moses was a shadow. He was a type. 
He was not perfect and that's why He's not worthy of the glory that only Christ is due. On the contrary, both Moses and us dwell in the same household of God and there is only one way any of us can make it through the door of the spiritual house that is by faith alone, through grace alone, in the Messiah. Moses didn't know His name, but you and I know His name. Let's say it together. His name is what? Jesus. Jesus. Moses was looking forward with faith. We look backward with faith. But we all are in the household of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe that this text is a vital death blow to anyone who wants to construct an interpretation of the Bible that says the Jews somehow exist as a separate people of God. No, that's false. There is only one people of God, the true Israel. Read Ephesians 2, verses 12-13, Romans 9 and 6. The household of God is not a separated household, separated somehow from modern day Israel. The house of God is Israel. The true Israel. Now you you want to shrink your church really fast? You say that and you're going to send people packing and running. Because this concept of two separate people of God has been so accepted and entrenched in the pulpits of this country for the last 100 to 200 years, it's almost as though we worship Israel. I mean, you can't say anything wrong against these people who reject Christ. This modern day political state. But I would challenge with charity any brother, any sister to reconcile Where I've made an error in my exegeting this text of what is the house of God, what was Jesus or what was Moses' role and position in that house of God, and who's the overseer and the builder of the house of God, Jesus, who we belong to along with Moses. I'm open to the debate. Maybe I just got myself in trouble. Okay. But what does all this house building talk have to do with Jesus' eternal existence and his temporal incarnation? relating to the assertion of why he deserves more glory as an apostle than the venerable Moses. I had to draw out that implication because I thought it was just right there in the text, but let's get back on track here. Why was it that Jesus' eternal existence and his temporal incarnation, why is it related to this assertion that he's worthy of more honor? It's probably just like so obvious to you now that I'm going to lose you, but look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the key. It says, For every house is built by some man, he that built all things is God. Now the word translated for here, uh, not to bore you with structures of English, but it's a conjunction. And it's simply meaning to serve as an explanation of the assertion that's already been stated. This is why I say it's the key verse. Do you recall how in chapters 1 and 2 the writer spent a considerable amount of time demonstrating that Jesus was God in the flesh? And how that in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the Son was said to make all things. He made it a point to establish and fix that truth in our minds. And how in chapter 1, verse 3, He said that Jesus upholds all things by the power of His Word. Verse 4, today in our text, is clarifying very clearly that Jesus is much more than just an apostle. No, He's much more. He, as God, is the eternal builder and overseer of this household of faith consisting of Moses as his servant, as well as us. 
And if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope and firm it to the end, we are demonstrating, we believe, we confess, we hold on to the hope that yes, He is eternal God. He did come in the flesh. He fulfilled all the obligations of the Father perfectly, righteously, and He is our eternal hope. He is the builder of the house. Think for a moment. Of course the divine and eternal Son is worthy of more glory. For He is the one who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, left all the glories of heaven above to die for your sins that you've committed. Moses didn't do that. Of course He's worthy of more glory. Of course He's worthy of our worship and our praise. You see, this preacher's trying to get them to see how could you ever forget the thing that you once professed you tasted. It was Jesus, our glorious and faithful Apostle, who left all the glory of heaven to be wounded for our transgressions, to be bruised for our iniquities, and had the chastisement of our peace laid upon Him. And it's through His stripes we are healed. He's worthy of more glory. Don't forget that. Whatever comes along in your walk with the Lord that attempts you to trust anything but the sacrifice of Christ His calling upon your life. The mission in which He was sent to accomplish. You must be careful, ever so uh, aware to reject it. Anything that attempts to blend itself with the perfect righteous work of Christ, you better be careful because it's going to get you away from the glory that only Christ is worthy of receiving. Peter is the one who told us through the inspiration of the Spirit that our precious Lamb of God, Jesus, had no sin. Neither was there guile even found in His mouth. And that pure Jesus took upon His precious and innocent head the cruel thorns and the mockeries which these first century Christians, as well as us, deserved. How could we ever be tempted to look at another way to heaven? I will never forget. I was at a church service one time. The context was a charismatic church service. The lady who was there, who was supposed to be the pastor, they're in the ecstatic euphoria of their worship service. She's standing up in the center of the church and now, just, you know, you feel sorry for these people. Going back to Matthew 15, 15, the blind leading the blind. Because what I'm about to tell you is serious, serious uh, stuff. I, and this is what will lead someone into the ditch that Jesus was talking about. But there were several people in the church, if I remember correctly, three or four or five people that were down at the feet of this woman in the euphoria of their worship service. If I was as much of a Moses then as I am now, I would have got straight up and walked out of that church. Um, but, but why am I bringing this all up? Beloved, we have to be so careful. While we may say we don't put men or people, leaders, celebrities on the same level as Jesus, let us be careful in the Christian circles. You know, Even if we may not agree on all the entireties of our theology, You don't bow down to any person. You don't worship Christ through another person. 
And this is one of the main staples of the Great Reformation against the Roman Catholic Church, of the Pope seeing himself as some sort of venerated man, a vicar, a Christ himself on earth. What blasphemy. What blasphemy. While there may be leaders among us, while there may be faithful men among us, we're thankful for them. None of them should ever, even in our minds or in the expressions of our adoration for Christ, ever be put on a pedestal to that degree. I don't even like people telling me, don't take this too far, guys, telling me that I did a good job in a sermon. I'd say, praise God. I want to deflect it. He's worthy of the glory, brothers and sisters. Not any of us. Not any of us. Well, we come to our application. Considering this comparison between these two faithful apostles, but only one receiving and being worthy of receiving of all glory because of his divinity, because of his willingness to limit himself in his humility and condescend down as a man and do what he did. And it's often said that you don't truly know what you have until it's gone. And these early Jewish Christians were considering leaving the Christ of the gospel. And the preacher who wrote this sermonic letter is doing all he possibly can to help them see that they have in the glorious person and the apostle of their faith, Jesus Christ. Don't walk away from who Christ is and what He's done for you. Dear Christian, here today, has your heart perhaps become lukewarm to these truths of Christ that we've explored, who is your faithful apostle, who you profess is your apostle, your Lord, your Messiah? If so, I encourage you to see Him as we're approaching the Lord's table. See Him afresh upon the cross, bleeding for your sins. The builder of all the household of God, willing to leave heaven to die for you. The perfect Lamb of God, paying a ransom that you couldn't pay. Oh, Christian, your heart should be inflamed right now with these truths. Perhaps there is someone here that has an external form of religion. And hasn't ever really seen themselves as one who put Christ upon the cross by the commission of their sins. Whoever you may be, I have but one simple question for you. What would be your answer if you were to die today and you were confronted by your holy creator and God as to why he ought to let you into heaven? What would be your answer? What would be your answer? The only answer is, by the merits of the righteous sacrifice of Jesus. And until you've seen yourself in a position of that being your only hope, I would say you still have much to learn about the gospel of Christ. May the Lord bless the hearing and the preaching of his word. Let's bow in prayer. Our faithful Father in heaven, we thank you, O oh God, that you have throughout the church's past given and raised up faithful men. Lord, we have learned much. Um, indeed, we could spend several sermons just exploring the life, the faithfulness, the usefulness of your prophet, your apostle Moses. What a man of vigor. What a man of strength. Oh, what a man of non-compromising uh, fortitude. Thank you for men such as this. Thank you for women as well, Lord, who you have raised up in your church. 
Father, you have given us such good godly examples and witnesses. And these people are much more than just memories in history books. They are demonstrations of your sustaining grace and power in the lives of changing the hearts of sinners. Oh, but Lord, as we've seen today, there is none that compares to our faithful apostle. Oh, our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O God, in our moments of weakness. Help us, O God, in our moments of temptation. Whatever Satan, the flesh, the devil in this world dangles in front of us. Help us, O God, to remember what we have in our Savior. Help us to know and to trust and to lean forever in His everlasting arms. And I pray, O God, today if there is someone who is pondering perhaps the question that we ended with of what they would say to you, when they will meet you as their creator upon their death, why, why should they receive eternal rest and bliss in your presence? Father, I pray that not one of us in this room are clinging to, considering any good thing that we have ever done or will do. It is but by the grace of you, O God, through thy son Jesus, that we have any hope. And this is why he is so worthy of our worship. He is so worthy of the commitment of all of our homes and all of our lives as individuals. Forgive us, Father, we pray. Forgive us for when we have waxed cold in these blessed realities, these new covenant realities of seeing even more clearly your love for us through your son Jesus than even great men as Moses and Abraham and David could have seen. Oh, the blessings we have on this side of the cross, they are so profound. And oftentimes, oh God, in the weakness of our flesh, because perhaps of familiarity, perhaps because of repetition, these things wax dull in our hearts. Lord, bring us back, we pray. In messages like this, when we're considering what Christ is and who He is and what He has done, bring us back, each one of us, to the cross. Help us to see Him with new eyes and help us to appreciate all the more what He has done on our behalfs. We thank You for this, Father, and we ask that You would bless now the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ in Your Holy Supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen.